Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 20, originally recorded live on June 3rd, 2011. Why should we be generous? In Judaism, generosity has been required by God. Humanism has no such mandate. Rabbi Shalom explores generosity and why it is important for us to be generous. In our service this evening, we explored four different kinds of characters in many different respects. In the Mishnah, there is a section called Pirkei Avot, the sayings of the fathers. And in this section, there are many advice pieces. You can actually do a personality test. I've done this with younger kids where you get points for which kind of character you are. Uh, are you a funnel or a sieve? Do you listen and retain or do you let it go in one ear and out the other, so to speak? In this particular case, there's one that explores generosity. There are four kinds of characters. One says, what is mine is mine, and what is yours is yours. Now, we all know people like that. It's the good fences make good neighbors line. And of course, in the poem, is trying to say it's not true. But in our popular wisdom, the understanding is, you stay on your side, I stay on mine, I have mine, you have yours. In Yiddish, you'd say, Gesundheit, go in good health, enough. One says, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. It says, this is the fool, because that's not a workable system. One says, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is yours. Mikasa asukasa. The door is open. Anything I have is yours, and keep what you have because I don't want it. And according to the Mishnah, this is the saint. And then one says, what is mine is mine, and what is yours is mine. It says here that is the rasha, the wicked, or the villain. Now the dilemma with looking to the Mishnah for wisdom or looking to rabbinic literature for wisdom is that there are passages like this that we think are really profound. They articulate a basic truth of the human experience. How wonderful that our tradition was so insightful. And then we read other passages that may not be as nice and not be as universal, not be as open, not be as reflective of our values today. You see, our values do not come from the past. Our values are not our values because we read them in a book. We find our values through our own experience, our education, certainly by reflecting on these, but also by applying our own mind to them and making our choices. So it's wonderful to see our values reflected in the past. But these aren't my values just because they're old, because there are other old values I don't accept. We have to find a balance. There's a basic reality of the human experience. We live with other people, whether we like it or not. Aristotle said, man is a social animal. Or in Genesis, it says, it is not good that humanity should be alone. And humanity is not alone. Now, when it comes to relating to each other and the demands that we make on each other, there are three basic models. There is the selfish, there is the clannish, and there is the altruistic, what we might call the most generous. 
Now we have to understand that of these three models, the selfish, the clannish, and the altruistic, each of them is very human. Each of them can be ethical in their own way, but they also hold their own peculiar dangers. So first, let's consider the selfish. Perhaps the easiest to understand, as a parent of a five-year-old and a three-year-old, I certainly understand that model from time to time. It's the individual surviving, the individual thriving, looking for food, looking for success. You might have read a book by Richard Dawkins many years ago called The Selfish Gene, which makes the argument that many of our behaviors have nothing to do with even the benefit of ourselves as individuals. We are driven to propagate our genes. In some ways, humanity itself, every individual human, is simply a gene survival machine. Now, that's very deflating <laughs> to think of yourself as simply the tool of a gene to propagate itself. But at the same time, Dawkins said, you can use that basis of what is reality, the fact that genes want to make more of themselves, as a basis for ethical behavior. But it starts with what's in it for me. We have lots of sayings like this. Survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. Every man for himself. Now, there is an ethical side to the selfish approach. First of all, you take personal responsibility. If I'm in charge of my life, if I'm looking out for me, then I'm responsible. I'm not waiting for someone else to do it for me. I'm not asking for someone else to help me. It's, it's me or bust. There's a sense of self-actualization. You really have to maximize what you yourself can become if you're in it for you. Even more important, when you experience success, you know that you did it. It wasn't because of someone else's help. It was because you did it for yourself, for your own motivation, for your own success, and for your own happiness. But what that also does is it gives you something that we strive for. It's called self-esteem, or a feeling of dignity, that you have the power to positively affect your own life. It's a positive value. Now, of course, there are dangers to the selfish approach, of course. You could find yourself isolated because you're all in it for you all the time, and guess what? Nobody wants to be with you. Um, it's like the, the rabbi who uh, has to laugh at his own jokes is a congregation of one. You know, we can all have our church of me. That's easy. That agrees with me 100% of the time. There's no politics, because there are no people. It's just me. Now, we also, of course, lose out on the reality of the interconnection of the individual and the community. After all, there's a limit to what we can do for ourselves, or even what we can buy, or we can pay others to do for us. There are times that we need generosity, and there are times even we ourselves are impelled to generosity. We have to understand that a purely selfish approach to life leaves us ostracized, not simply feeling isolated, but not accepted by society. There's a reason why societies like people who are generous and tend to not like people who are not. And most importantly, if we are only in it for us and only see what benefits us, we can create a sense of bitterness about life. Because there are all these times that it feels like people are asking us to do things that we don't want to do, or taking stuff from us that we think is ours, or demanding that we do things that don't seem to benefit us directly. I mean, that's life in a community, that's the reality. But if we've insisted that the only approach to life is self-actualization, doing it for myself, and then all these people are making all these demands, well, they get annoyed. And even better, if it happens again and again. Thus the selfish.
What is the clannish? The clannish is focusing on your clan, on your family, the, the intimate circle of the people you know, your condo association, your family, your ethnic group, or your religious community. In some ways, it's an extension of the selfish gene, after all. You know, the old joke was that someone said, uh, would you risk your life to save a brother? And he said, no, but I would risk my brother to save two cousins. It's the same number of your genes, more or less, in that quantity. Well, we can think of it more realistically, that people are willing to bend the rules for their brother, and they're willing to bend the rules, perhaps not as many for their cousin, and for their second cousin twice removed, they might be willing to do something. The point is that we always have a sense of a family, an extended community, for which we're willing to do something. And there's a reason for that. When humanity evolved, we evolved in very small groups. Our brains are not, quote, built to handle 200 million people in the core group, or 6 billion or 7 billion people in the core group. We're used to core groups that are a family, or an extended family, or a clan, or maybe a tribe, or maybe, just maybe, a nation. But not a nation of 500 million or a billion people. It doesn't compute. Now, we understand as well that this question of the clannish impulse, the helping the family, helping the in-group, is an ethical value. But it's one that's variable across cultures. In some cultures, Nepotism is seen as a positive good. Why would you help a stranger get a job instead of your relative? That just seems crazy. You know your relative, it's gonna help the family. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you help your relative get the job? In other cultures, this is called nepotism. And you're not allowed to do that because it's inefficient. It causes bribes, the less qualified person gets the job, and so on and so on. But your perspective is, well, if I have to work with this guy, I better be related. Because then we get along. Well, you understand the dilemma. And in different cultures, that value of the right person gets the job is a value, and the value of supporting and loving your family is a value, and the relative weight of those values changes in different parts of the world. After all, when you look back at Jewish religious tradition, there are all kinds of ethical rules, rules in the Mishnah, rules in the Talmud, and some of them apply to how Jews treat Jews. And in some cases, there are different rules applying to how Jews treat non-Jews. Now, it's never as bad as the anti-Semite would have you believe. It's never as bad as those disputations between rabbis and former uh, Jews, or even rabbis who had left and joined the Catholic Church, who then wanted to prosecute the Jews for their hatred of Christians. In general, Jews didn't hate the non-Jews as much as the non-Jews hated the Jews. But, after all, centuries of persecution doesn't leave a warm feeling in your heart for the people around you. And so there are passages that we might find problematic, even objectionable, about the difference between how you treat Jews and how you treat non-Jews. But after all, when you take a step back, is it so wrong to pay special attention to your family? I mean, are you really expected to treat your children the same as any other child? Or your parents the same as any other older person? Of course not. Is it wrong to care for your people a bit more than you care for other people, as long as you do care for other people? I don't know that that's so wrong. After all, what do people do? Ferry crashes in Indonesia, two Americans killed. By the way, 250 others also killed. Who knows where they're from? Well, how many Chicagoans 
we're involved in so-and-so. Well, it's what we do. We have to base our ethics on the reality of the human condition, not just what we aspire to. There's a marvelous short story by Philip Roth called The Conversion of the Jews. At the beginning of this short story, there's a boy who keeps getting called to the rabbi's office because he says things that are just appalling. At the beginning of the story, there's a plane crash outside of New York City, and his mother goes through the list of names that were printed in the paper counting how many Jews were on the plane. And her son says, I wish they were all Jews. He has to go to see the rabbi about that. Of course, what happened in that dynamic was not that he wanted more Jews to die. He wished they were all Jews so she would pay attention to all of them in the same way. You see, this is our tension. It's our balance between our Jewishness, our connection to the Jewish people, and our humanism, our connection to the broader family of humanity. In some ways, that broader family is abstract, not as personal. But at the same time, is there a way that we can love our family and still treat other people fairly? You see, the danger is chauvinism. It's my family is better than everybody else. Or on the other hand, on the negative side, the other, the non-my family, is less than fully human. You know, you can sometimes judge cultures and religions by how they treat the other. Is the other a full person? a potential you, even equal to you in how you treat them and value them? Or are they subordinate but still important? Or are they simply other disposable, even objectionable to you? I think it's okay to love some people more than other people. After all, I would aspire to loving my wife and my children and my cousins and my congregation more than a generic person I meet on the subway. After all, there's a reason why we don't personally engage every single person we meet in a large city. Our brain would explode. We just weren't built for it. There's a reason why the nation state persists, why the congregation persists, why the community, the neighborhood, the family is still there. They tried to break it down in the kibbutz. It didn't work. They tried to break it down again and again in universalist political movements. And it didn't work. Even the Communist Party in this country in the 1920s had to organize national sections. They were supposed to be as international as possible, but guess what? There was the Polish internationalists, and the Ukrainian internationalists, and the Jewish internationalists. And guess which, guess which group was larger than all the other groups put together? The Jewish internationalists. Now the third impulse is the altruistic. And this is often what we think of when we think of generosity. It's giving of oneself to other people and not getting any personal benefit out of doing good. That's what we think of when we think of community service, collections, even the word tzedakah, charity. But the truth is that being purely altruistic is practically impossible. You're saying you get no benefit whatsoever from it? I mean, in many ways, it sounds like Kant's, what he calls the deontological ethic, the idea that you're doing it out of deont, out of duty. The only reason you should do something good, says Kant, is because you are following the rules. Not because you get any benefit, any pleasure, any enjoyment out of, well, that's not why we're good. We're allowed to get a personal satisfaction out of doing good. We're allowed to be able to think of ourselves as a good person. It's one of the reasons we do good. We're allowed to get social approval for doing good. I try to convince the community service committee there's nothing wrong with letting people know that you're doing good. 
It's okay because it encourages others to do good and it reinforces those who are doing good with the public approval that they get. Now, why is it the case that societies tend to approve people who are generous in this altruistic way? Because it's good for society if people are willing to give to the group. They found in studying game theory and how people relate to each other that what's called tit for tat, if you cooperate with me, then I cooperate with you, and if you don't cooperate with me, then I well, won't cooperate with you the next time, maybe I forgive you once in a while, and these kind of games of how people interact with each other have found that being open to cooperate and even being open to forgiveness creates the most effective society. Again, we didn't evolve in a bubble, in a test tube, isolated on an island. No state of nature of autonomous individuals out there. We grew up in communities, clans, tribes, federations. We learned to be with each other. We know how to forgive. That's very, revenge is human, but so is forgiveness. And so we learn to be together by being generous with each other. And look at kids playing together. Now, some kids say, mine! And some kids say, here. And sometimes the same kid will go through cycles of mine and here. That's part of life. It's give and take, literally. Now, in traditional religion, as we saw in this passage, the one who says, what's mine is yours, and yours is yours, this is the saint, the ideal, the self-sacrificing, but on some level, that also ranges the danger for us. After all, martyrdom is not a humanist idea. Fully subsuming your individual self for the cause is not about self-actualizing. It's not about being a fully developed person. You want to be strong enough that you know who you are and you can give to other people. We're not the ants that die by the thousands so that other ants can cross the water. After all, we're also worried that if altruism is taken as a rule, it's not really generosity. You see, if it's imposed on everyone, is it really ethical? We're allowed to be generous to ourselves, after all. And if the idea is to encourage people to give, it's not the same as forcing them to give. It's like the Israeli volunteer system in the army. Where they say we need three volunteers, you, you, and you. <laughs> Time for contributions right now. Well, that's not generosity. You see, the trick is to balance all of these agendas, the selfish, the clannish, and the altruistic, the giving. They're each appropriate, but in different circumstances. I'm sorry to tell you, this is the challenge of humanistic ethics. There are no automatic rules. You come to me with a problem, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I hopefully will help you decide what to do for yourself. I can ask questions, I can clarify alternatives, but in the end, you, like it or not, are in charge of your own life. There are four characters that give to charity. One desires to give, but not that others should give. This is the person who likes the recognition. One wants to give, but wants others to give, but will not give oneself. This is the fundraiser who won't pledge to their own drive. One gives and wants others to give. This is the ideal. And one will not give and doesn't care if others give. Well, that's the worst. You see, when we think about the word tzedakah in Hebrew, or in Jewish life, even in Yiddish, we think of it as charity. We think of it as money, the tzedakah box, the blue, what used to be called the pushka, that you put a few coins in to help feed scholars in Israel or help buy trees or whatever else the money went to. But the truth is, the word tzedakah does not mean just charity. It means righteousness, 
It means acting rightly. And sometimes that's money, but often it's not. When you look at Maimonides' famous ladder of charity, the ladder of tzedakah, the highest rung of that ladder is not anonymous charity. It's giving someone a job, so they don't need charity anymore. It's the old saying, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and he goes out and drinks beer. Well, that's modified. Um, teach a man to fish, and he can feed himself for a lifetime. Or the other version I saw recently, give a man a fish and feed him for a day, give a man a religion, he'll start to praying for a fish. <laughs> well, in any case, the point is that even Maimonides' list of tzedakah does not include only money, it's about doing. The tzedakah fund of this congregation was not created simply to dole out funds all over, all over the place, it was to help us do it. We've used it to buy supplies for the gardening project. It wasn't simply give money, it was use money to do something. Our community service projects that we encourage our mitzvah students to undertake, their experiences in tzedakah and their general experiences in doing something, not simply raising money for something else. We want them to do. If it's playing an instrument at a retirement home, collecting things, cleaning up garbage, who knows what it could be. They'll find something that's meaningful to them, but most importantly, they'll experience it by doing. You see, the best model for us is neither the selfish, nor the clannish, nor the altruistic. The fancy phrase for it is enlightened self-interest. We make choices for ourselves, but we make wise choices when we consider what's best for the people around us, as well as ourselves. And this is a theme throughout Jewish history. In the Middle Ages, one of the most popular tzedakah funds, or community funds, that would be raised in port cities around the Mediterranean was the Save the Captives Fund. As merchants would travel across the Mediterranean, surprise, surprise, there were lots of pirates who would capture the ships, including the cargo and the passengers. But the pirates would often save the Jews on these ships because they knew that when they got to the port, they could then ransom the captives because the local Jewish community would buy their freedom. In many cases, it saved Jewish lives. And you knew, if you gave to this captive fund, that perhaps sometime in the future when you were on a ship, you might get caught. And if you're from Marseille and you don't know anybody in Cairo, but you have that Jewish connection that will get you off the pirate ship and keep you alive, that's an enlightened self-interest. Or another example was the dowry for orphans fund. Remember, in a world where a woman's dowry would get her a husband, if you were an orphan, how would you marry? Well, the community would help to provide through this dowry for the orphans fund. And interestingly enough, we had a mitzvah student who collected, of all things, uh, prom dresses for a program called the Glass Flipper Project which collects old prom dresses that people have grown out of and don't need anymore for people that can't afford them so that everyone gets a nice dress to go to prom. It's not quite a dowry, um, but it is giving everyone the opportunity to experience what you want people of their age to experience. Well, there's even a phrase in the traditional prayer service about the importance of tzedakah as a kind of enlightened self-interest. The phrase is, tzedakah made silmi mavet, Charity saves from death. Now, I think when they originally wrote it, they were not meaning that you can save other people from death. I really think the meaning was, tzedakah, if you give charity, it will save you from death. We all sin, 
But if you do good deeds, maybe when they're counting up the totals at the end of the year, that you can buy your way out of death. It's an indulgence. It's an indulgence. It's John Rockefeller, right? It's all, all these things that we've heard all the time. Well, for humanists, of course, there's nobody keeping score. So that motivation isn't there to do good. In fact, as some have said, humanism is an exercise in being good without a God, keeping track, keeping score, watching what you do. There are, in fact, many humanist charity organizations out there. There's something called the Foundation Beyond Belief, which uh, grants money to uh, both humanist and even non-humanist charities, as long as proselytism and religion is not part of their mission, but doing good is part of the mission. There's also an organization called Human Associated Humanist Charities that does similar work, including in Haiti and other places. Um, and many humanist organizations and humanist Jewish congregations have a community service program like our own committee that improve the world and don't just say that they're improving the world, they do it. At our Barnabas Mitzvah services, we often will have a reading by Rabbi Eliezer Benazaria, also from uh, Mishnah Avot. It says, someone who has wisdom without good deeds, to what might they be compared? You can compare them to a tree with many branches and few roots. If a wind comes and blows against the tree, it uproots it and turns it over. But someone who has many good deeds, even if they don't have much wisdom, they are like a tree with many roots and few branches. Even if a strong, strong wind comes, nothing can move it from its place. You see, you learn to be good by doing good. You learn to be generous by giving. You see, the irony is that helping others helps us. We think that giving is like reducing what we have. But the truth is, it's like a candle. When one candle lights another candle, the first candle doesn't get any dimmer. But the collective light gets that much brighter. There was a family that was having money issues. And they went to their rabbi to ask for advice. And the rabbi said, why don't you set up a tzedakah box on your mantle and put a little bit of money in there every day? And they said, we're having trouble with not enough money, don't you understand? She said, try it. And it turns out that by feeling like they were helping other people, it improved their attitude. They weren't spinning their wheels anymore. They weren't focusing on what they didn't have, what they couldn't do. They realized that by giving, they were stronger. They had the power to help others. It made them feel better. It didn't save them from death, but it did save them. You see, when we give to others, it's not the magical gospel of wealth that says, if you give to the pastor, you'll get rich. Maybe I should try that, but I'm not going to. It's not a mysterious protection racket of, we're going to save you from death, and if you don't give us tzedakah, we're not going to save you from death. Hint, hint, hint. What we live in is a web of mutual need. We need each other. We need generosity, and we give generosity. We feel better about ourselves, and we feel part of our community by helping each other. That's the basic building block of society and of being a good person and feeling that you are a good person. So I want to end with a story. It's set in Eastern Europe. And very often in Eastern Europe, we would have the town uh, open most of, the, most of the days of the week. But on Friday evening, everyone would come into their homes gather for Shabbat, and experience it as a family. One day, a stranger came to town on Friday afternoon, but he could not find a door open on Shabbat until finally he came to a 
house at the end of the town. And the door was open. He came in and enjoyed a wonderful Shabbat there with the family. And it turns out in the morning, when he went to synagogue, he didn't see his host there. And he found out from the other people at the synagogue that his host had, in fact, been the town apicorus, the town heretic, who didn't go to synagogue, who was a free thinker, who didn't believe in all that religious stuff. Most towns had their town apicorus, their town heretic. And so he went back to his host after synagogue, and he said, you're the apicorus, the heretic. Why did you help me? And the apicorus said, well, those other people who didn't answer the door, they assumed that God would provide. I knew that I had to provide for you. That's our model. Without anyone else to do it, we have to do it. If I need, I'll ask for help. But if you have help to give, consider giving. Save for yourself. Be generous to yourself. But we are as important as I. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.